0: Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. Geopolitics is often conceived of as a realm of pure realpolitik, where ideology takes a backseat to the ruthless and unsentimental pursuit of strategic interests. But all politics involve storytelling, and geopolitics is no exception. Take the Cold War, The United States and its allies presented their struggle with the Soviet Union as a fight against totalitarianism in the name of truth, justice, and later, the American way. In turn, the USSR cast it as a long march towards communism's inevitable victory over the assembled forces of bourgeois reaction. Both powers used these narratives to legitimize themselves on the world stage, to shore up domestic support, and to unite their allies around a common cause, Since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the subsequent end to the Cold War, those old narratives have lost much of their power. The apparent triumph of the liberal democratic world order proved short-lived, and today's increasingly multipolar world, a range of new narratives jostle to take its place. I'm joined today by Faisal Devji, a professor of history at the University of Oxford, who has spent much of his career examining the role of narrative in a wide array of different political contexts. His books include Muslim Zion, Pakistan as a Political Idea, and The Impossible Indian, Gandhi and the Temptations of Violence. Last year, along with Gallup Delay, he co-authored an article for the National Interest called The Ukraine War's Impact Extends Far Beyond Europe, arguing that the Western conception of that war has failed to resonate outside of Europe. Faisal, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be there.
0: I wanted to start by asking how important you think it actually is for states to have a compelling geopolitical narrative. I mean, does a superpower like the United States, with all its wealth and influence and weaponry at its disposal, does it really need to tell a good story
1: to get what it wants? Yes, I think it does. Not just for external actors, not just for its allies and potential enemies or real enemies, but for itself as well, because realism even if a geopolitical variety really makes no sense without narrative. And we see this, you know, from the beginning of the idea of geopolitics itself, because, of course, there's never any agreement, even internally, within a country like the United States and its policymaking community uh, as to what is the most beneficial path to follow, even uh, vis-a-vis agreed enemies. Or agreed obstacles or agreed problems mm. there's always more than one view in at play and what is required to make one prevail over the other is a convincing narrative and often these narratives are as it were, made up as they go along they're not necessarily historically verified or verifiable so for instance we know that in the united states as in other countries you have frequent recourse to the Cold War and to the Second World War as the defining events of the 20th and, you know, 21st centuries. But the the understanding of what the Cold War or the Second World War meant departs significantly from scholarly accounts of, of those two great conflicts. So, you know, the narrative itself needn't be historically verifiable or verified, but it needs to exist as a narrative nevertheless, in order to make possible some sense of realism. So this is not uh, a question of uh, deciding between an idealistic or principled foreign policy on the one hand and a realistic one, uh, or let us say an unprincipled one, but rather uh, how to make decisions based on having a narrative is the only context for decision-making that we have
0: and and you think that that narrative has power both domestically and internationally meaning that it's important for in the case of the americans a story to be told to the american public and then also a story to be told beyond america's borders
1: exactly uh, and even more than that in fact it's a story that needs to be convincing to the very people who are telling it that they now they may tell one story externally or to a domestic audience and reserve another story for themselves. But even the story they reserve for themselves is, after all, a narrative. And it needs to be believed in. So you you can, as it were, divide up these narratives in all kinds of ways, you know, authentic, genuine, you know, half true, half false. But in the end, you need some kind of narrative or some set of narratives in order to make political decisions possible at all yeah
0: i mean it seems to me that if you're talking about the the narrative a country tells itself and its and its allies and enemies there are two aspects to it one is that there's a strategic as, uh, aspect in which you tell the story in the hope that you convince other people to do what you want but then it also provides a kind of purpose and a direction um for telling the story. So the narrative is what gives your actions meaning, but it also at the same time kind of gives you a blueprint with which to understand the world. So in a concrete way, just so that the audience understands it, if you are talking about democracy promotion, if that is the narrative that you are using, that also leads you to certain actions, because you then have to take certain actions, maybe in other spheres that promote democracy.
1: Exactly. You know, in order for, you know, once you have a narrative, it has to be constantly supported by your actions. Uh, otherwise, it ceases to have effect as a narrative. And it's, if it ceases to effect, then your decisions cease to matter as much. They no longer draw in allies necessarily, or they some, simply compel agreement, which is not what you want. And they cease to have meaning for yourself. And you do see instances of this where you know at certain points, people just stop believing in their own narratives. So you know towards the end of the Vietnam War, you know, with the collapse of the McCarthyism in the United States, just to take American examples, you see these instances where very powerful narratives, which have commandeered you know entire populations and states, suddenly seem to lose credibility, and they lose credibility not just because of military defeats or anything like that, but because they become internally contradictory and incoherent, and they they, as with McCarthyism, seem to collapse under the the the, the weight of their own contradictions.
0: And i guess this is one of the parts of political narratives that perhaps you who study them you find it so fascinating because as you were saying earlier the people involved have to believe it on some level it's very hard to hold in your mind contradictory ideas so on some level of course you are promoting it if you're a politician let's say a us politician you are promoting things to the audience in a certain way but on some level you have to believe it but then yes. right but then there comes a point where the kind of the narrative tail wags the dog, like it leads you in a direction that perhaps you didn't really want to go in.
1: Yes, and that is actually one of the, you know, more interesting consequences of political debate and discourse in general, that, you know, you might think that you're planning it out to the last T, you know, crossing the last T and dotting the last I, but it inevitably takes you in different directions, in directions that you didn't predict. So even when you do often achieve your ends, You have, you know, and we have words for this, blowback, you know, inadvertent consequences, unpredicted events, and all the rest. And sometimes your own success, the success of your narrative, and therefore of your political actions, ends up having these consequences that you could not have foreseen. And one of the reasons for that is precisely what you say, that, you know, you have to, once you have a narrative, you can flex it here and there, but you can't depart from it entirely. And that ends up taking you in often quite new and strange places. So it's helpful, I think, with these topics, which can seem very
0: uh, amorphous to kind of talk about it in a concrete way. And the most, uh, the easiest on, the most e- easy, one to understand is the Cold War, um, where you have this situation where the United States and Western allies are facing the Soviet Union. Now, that narrative proved to be extremely powerful for a very long time. And then At the end of the, after the Soviet Union collapsed, you had in the 1990s, this brief attempt to kind of reinvent NATO as a kind of peacekeeping force with Kosovo and other conflicts. And then the narrative shifted with the 2000s into the war on terror. But I think, tell me if you agree with this, I don't think you could say that either of those narratives were particularly strong and compelling in the way that communism had
1: been. You're right. They weren't, which is why you have a lot of fidgeting going on. You know, there is an attempt uh, to create new enemies, which doesn't quite succeed. You know, only after 9-11 do you actually have that happen. But that, too, is transitory. So in 20 years, that fails as well. So, you know, that's one bit of the post-Cold War political dispensation that I find very, very interesting. Mm. You know, how do you save the narrative that you've put into place after the Second World War? which has been honed variously during the Cold War, and you no longer have it, suddenly disappears. The very thing that you wanted to happen, the collapse of the Soviet Union, happens and you no longer know what to do. Uh, So that's one very interesting example of how we're really quite wedded to narratives and that our political decisions really have no meaning without them. So the 90s is a bit of a muddle. Now, of course, looking back at it in retrospect, Scholars and journalists often come up with what amount to conspiratorial visions of, ah, it was planned already. You know, neoliberalism was hiding in the wings and, you know, we we needed to just marketize everything. Uh, Globalization becomes, you know, the big uh, phenomenon of our times, uh, post-Cold War. And then all you have is the market running everything and things falling apart. Hmm. Now, more recent events have shown us that no doubt neoliberalism is or was a very powerful ideology and we are living with its effects, but it simply is not true to say that it, you know, from the end of the Cold War, it just started running everything in the West or indeed all over the world, because you see with the pandemic, but also more recently with the Ukraine war, the huge role that states have begun to play again. And, you know, this did not signal an ideological crisis where suddenly everything fell apart. On the contrary, the return of the state and of state actors in domestic policy due to the pandemic on the one hand, and of course, in international policy as well due to the Ukraine war, has not just gotten rid of neoliberalism. We are moving in a new direction. But what we have is, you know, a, a, a way of doing politics and a way of thinking that has is beginning to assume a new set— a, 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 a contours of its own that are now, for the first time, beginning to look quite different from what the Cold War dispensation had looked like. So, yeah. the nineties and the two thousands, you don't have the a clean break, the end of the Cold War, and new narrative. You have a muddling through, and it's only now that you're seeing the contours of a different kind of world becoming visible.
0: And it's really fascinating. I mean, it must be particularly fascinating for for a historian like yourself to be able to see how long it takes for these narrative lines to shift. I mean, if you think about, let's say, it's just the early 1990s, the Soviet Union collapses. And of course, lots of, let's talk about the United States, lots of clever people, politicians, journalists, academics, people in think tanks, very bright people had spent decades operating within that particular framework. And they believed in it and of course they got rewarded for it and so on. And then suddenly it all changes and there's a long period of time where people are trying out different versions. People who have a certain amount of power, they try it out. They, the people who are intellectually interested in the topic, try it out. And it's almost like the intellectual part is jostling with the political part to try to see which one will work. Yes.
1: And, you know, in in a way, we're still in that world. Well, let let me correct myself here. We're still in that world insofar as there is still an attempt to retrieve bits of the old Cold War narrative. Mm. And the Ukraine war is a perfect example of this because, uh, you know, you see in the West, in certain parts of the sort of palpable sense, not just of the crisis that the war poses, but rather a curious sense, a strange sense of satisfaction. Ah, we are back to a situation which we now understand. This is no longer, you know, terrorism, you know, supposedly self-radicalizing individuals that we don't understand. How does it work? What does it mean? We're back to interstate conflict. We're back to conquests and invasions. We're back to the possibility of detente or negotiation or whatever, or a slow grinding down of the enemy. And it looks like something very familiar. So there's a sense of palpable relief among many commentators who are old enough to have been part of that Cold War world of thinking. And yet, I think this is an entirely false way of thinking about what faces us. And what's happening in the rest of the world outside the West shows us that indeed this uh, sense of familiarity with what's happening today is utterly belied by how other parts of the world, in particular in the global south, see this conflict. They don't see it in those terms at all.
0: Yeah, so that, I mean, essentially that is what we are here to talk about, to talk about the specifics of the Ukraine war in the in terms of the narrative and the shifting narrative. We started in a kind of meta perspective, and I think it's probably worth honing down into the Ukraine war, because if there is a one war that really highlights how these geopolitical narratives have changed since, well, since the 90s, then it is the war in Ukraine. Because as you say, it seems to be taking people back to familiar territory. And so we'll get to the um, the Ukrainian and Russian narratives in a moment. But I thought if we start with the quote unquote West, Europe and America, there has been, it feels like a marked decline in Western self-confidence since, let's say, the mid-1990s in their vision of a liberal world order. And then I think it has been reaffirmed, particularly, for example, with NATO, because it seems like NATO, which, you know, as Macron said, was brain dead, suddenly seems to have found a purpose. And it's a purpose that is very, very similar to the purpose it had previously.
1: Yes. uh, You know, this is what gives the whole enterprise such a, uh, you know, Depending on who you are, you know, you get a warm and fuzzy feeling of because it's it's it, it's so nos- nostalgia inducing uh, and so familiar in 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 some ways uh, that one is easily deluded into thinking we're back to true politics, the way politics is meant to work. This is what geopolitics is really about, and that what we had been dealing with in the early two thousands with with uh, global terrorism, which is about the internecine roiling of populations, uh, the inability to think about uh, enmity and conflict in interstate terms, uh, uh, you know, the the fact that terrorism was linked more to civil war-like situations than interstate conflict, you know, that world seems to have been put aside, but I think we put it aside at our peril, which is not to say that I think terrorism is a continuing threat. I think internecine problems linked to the possibility of civil war are, will continue to be real problems. And of course, we deal with them today in by naming them things like polarization and inequality. Mm-hmm. So they continue, but they have been subordinated to what appears to be a return to grand strategy and geo, geopolitical enmity, which is interstate. And of course, that's happening. There has been an invasion of UK, Ukraine, but I don't think you can separate one from the other. And by that, I don't simply mean because, you know, there's Russian disinformation campaign or anything like that, or for that matter, American disinformation campaigns, according to the Russians. I mean, these two things are interconnected in such a way that you can no longer pretend that geopolitics is some kind of uh, self-contained chessboard in which you can move your pieces about, and they all have to do with interstate conflict and the future of a global order. The global order is now no longer conceivable without thinking about individuals, and internal, domestic, internecine conflict at the same time, and of course you see this in Ukraine as well. It starts out arguably as a civil war, or at least in part as a civil war. So that vision hasn't gone anywhere, but that's the vision we really don't have a handle on because geopolitical strategy doesn't really tell us how to deal with it.
0: We talked about these narratives as if they are, as if they are things that aren't really real but actually they can have a real world effect so as an example we're still talking about ukraine the narrative promoted by ukraine the democracy liberalism a sense of europeanness that has been something very powerful that ukraine's leaders have been able to to grasp onto And it's a way that a less powerful and influential country like Ukraine can take hold of these grand geopolitical narratives and actually rally people around the world to their defense. So in that sense, the Ukrainians didn't need to come up with some explanation of why the Russians had invaded them. They didn't need an independent vision of a new global order, because there was already this narrative in place, and they kind of latched onto it. And they've used it, I think, very successfully to sell the invasion.
1: Yeah, and it it goes in many different directions. I mean, the latest one has to do with anti-colonialism. So, Mm. you you know, on the assumption that the global South, which has been noticeably absent, much of it uh, in its support for Ukraine, you know, needed to be appealed to by using a narrative that was more meaningful to, to them, to countries in the global South, especially former colonies. So decolonization has been ramped up as part of the narrative of of liberal freedoms, you know, to argue that Ukraine is at the receiving end of a colonial invasion from its former colonial master. And that, you know, countries which have had this kind of experience in the past need to realize this and identify with it. And how can you not identify with the and tradition. that, just
0: to interrupt you, but I want to explain this for the audience. That is an explicit shift in the way that the Ukrainians are trying to sell their need for support. Because when in the beginning, when the audience for Ukraine was primarily Western countries, it was sold as an overturning of democracy, a shared Europeanness. But then, as you've written elsewhere. The global South did not seem to buy into that story very much. So now, as the Ukrainians need more support from the global South, you see that they turn to these kind of narratives about um, a post-colonial. Um, they 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 look for post-colonial narratives and try to place the current war
1: within them. Yes, precisely, and you know it's it's very it's actually quite fascinating because, of course, there is something to be said about the Russian Empire, there's a great deal to be said, about the Russian Empire, both in its czarist form and, if you would like to use the term empire for it, in its Soviet form. And, you know, in the West and in many post-colonial countries, that empire or those empires are rarely considered when thinking about decolonization. Uh, On the contrary, the Soviet Union is often seen, especially as being supportive of anti-colonial movements in Africa and Asia and, and and other parts of the world in parts of Latin America as well. Yeah. But the Ukraine war has actually, for the first time almost, brought those two forms of empire and therefore forms of decolonization together in the public consciousness. And that is actually quite a major transformation. Whether it'll last or not, I don't know, you know, whether this will continue being the way in with this linkage will continue to exist or subsist in the public imagination, either in the West or elsewhere, I I, I don't know. But I think it's a, it's a quite extraordinarily interesting development.
0: And then, because the, part of the, the major part of this conversation is about the global South and the way that the global South hasn't really accepted some of the narrative being put out, actually, frankly, by either side. As I said in the introduction, you wrote an article for the National Interest last year where, this is a quote, you said, the West's current resurgence in confronting Russia is itself a largely regional effort taking place in Europe. And there is no similar resurgence of the West in the regional politics of the non-Western world. In fact, the opposite is the case. And you argue that part of the reason for that, part of the reason that there is this reticence in the global South to get too involved is that there is the memory of the failures of the war on
1: terror. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, so much of the problem is that, you know, the first narrative we were talking about, vis-a-vis the Ukraine war, that is to say, democracy, liberalism, you know, the, the attack on these virtues and these values by a descendant of the former Soviet empire, that narrative was all about the Second World War and the Cold War. The narrative that, countries in the global south seem to be more attuned to has to do with much more recent history, which is to say the war on terror. And that, I think, is seen as being the closest precedent to the current uh, war, which is seen not simply as a war in and for Ukraine, but rather as offering an opportunity for the West, let's say the collective West, to remake the global order altogether in the same way that the war on terror was not simply a war against the Al-Qaeda, you know, holed up in Afghanistan and later against Iraq, right. but was seen as an opportunity for the remaking of the global order altogether, which is why it was called the global war on terror. Right. And, you know, it's this lineage that I think takes front place as far as narratives and concerns are are dealt with in 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 countries like india and brazil and south africa so there's been a fundamental divergence here that the standard issue narrative of second world war and cold war in which those two wars are the pillars that define everything to do with global history and the, and a, the global order both of the past and one that hopefully comes into being are no longer convincing mm-hmm. for people in many parts of the world and so the global south, these countries that you mentioned, the BRICS countries,
0: they don't really want to be involved in what they think might be another
1: geopolitical gamble like the war on terror. Yes. I mean, the war on terror was, it had many destructive consequences, but it was arguably a failure, even in the opinion of those who promoted it. And, but those who promoted it did not necessarily have to suffer all the destructive consequences of their own failure. The failure, was suffered by others in much more intense ways, not just in Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan and in large parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, but in countries that were apparently far removed, as uh, you know, from from the conflict. Not simply by force of arms, but because of the strengthening of Western and particularly American military power, the tightening up of sanctions regimes the the deployment, the preemptive deployment of force, the ability to act in in a concerted way with other countries, with allies, in, in in large-scale military actions without going through the UN, it really destroyed international law in that sense and and sidestepped the United Nations in particular. And that is not something that many of these countries are keen to see either reinforced or repeated.
0: Mm. Did I understand you properly that you think the war on terror was also a failure from a
1: narrative perspective? Did I get that correct? Yes, well, it had, you know, it had a certain purchase in many parts of the world, and it still does to the degree that terrorism and counterterrorism remain completely legitimate and crucial, almost existential threats in many parts of the world. And a lot of what was put into place in the United States first during the war on terror you know, changing the law as to, you know, the rights of uh, prisoners, the amount of time they can be held in captivity, to say nothing of interrogation and torture, these precedents that were set in the United States and Western Europe then went all over the world, and they're still there. So in that sense, it was, a, if, if, if you want to argue there's some degree of success from the war on terror, that was a success. It's not a very happy success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a success because it continues being uh, perfectly legitimate, not only in terms of narrative but in terms of practices, the kinds of practices mm, that I practices. mentioned. And you know, everyone uses this language to this day, though I'm not sure it re- it retains so much of its believability, credibility any longer among ordinary people. Yeah,
0: but it has. There has been a lot of purchasing power on the on the the, the narrative because. That This idea of terrorism is still being used. Putin used it about the drone attacks. Turkey used it the other day about um, its fight against the Kurds. There is This framing of non-state actors or illegitimate actors, for example, in the case of uh, how Russia perceives Ukraine, that they are inherently terrorists. This framing has worked. Lots of countries have grabbed hold of it and they keep using it.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, you know, and what's interesting is that, you know, it, it's something that comes out of the West and especially the US. But in the current conflict, it seems to characterize non-Western countries more than Western ones. So, you know, the Americans seem to have gone back to some vision, as I was saying earlier, of a familiar interstate conflict with Russia or possibly with China. Whereas countries like China or Russia or Turkey for that matter, though it's part of NATO. Continue using and developing the 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 war on terror language uh, of non-state actors and uh, preemptive attacks and you know all, all this kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have you know that that period of muddling through, which was in uh, w- which achieved its summit of incoherence with the war on terror, you know produced a certain kind of narrative, parts of which are still available for use, uh, but they are used by countries often. Non-Western or even anti-Western countries, whereas in the West, at least on this conflict, you seem to have gone back to a vision of interstate right, right, a yes. uh, war. So you were, you you. I mean, you have interesting survivals on both sides. You know, bits of nostalgia, if you will, for prior conflicts. One much more recent, one much further in the distance. We've talked about the geopolitical visions of the West,
0: but we really should talk about the global South, especially rising powers like India and China, which are going to define the future of the world.
1: What visions do these countries have of themselves? Well, you know, that is a really important question, but one that I'm not sure has an answer. So that, you know, because what we have from China is this vision of expansion without conflict, a purely economic expansion. And in a way, it's it's a kind of idea that is familiar from earlier American history. You know, the idea that free trade. Uh, in fact, it's 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 part of British history as well. You know, that free trade there'll be an empire of free trade that's created, which will obviate the the need for military force, and that trade itself will remake societies. So there's a neoliberal vision of this, and then there is of course. Um a, a much more mercantilist uh, understanding of it. Now, in the case of China, you cannot take this vision at face value because you have to ha- add to it the ideological carapace of Chinese communism, however, it might have changed in in the in the years since Mao um, mm. was at the head of that country. But you cannot think of that state without, communism, and the ideology, such as it is these days, uh, built into it. And, you know, there are many interesting scholars who write about this, you know, one of whom is Professor Michael Pewitt at Harvard, who has this wonderfully interesting argument on how the Chinese Communist Party sees itself and its role in the world, that it's there to succeed peacefully as the global hegemons succeed the United States peacefully. And what he says is that with the Trump election, the Chinese were faced with this uh, awkward situation in which it looked like the U.S. was uh, declining faster than they thought it would. And so they had been interested in a further 50 years of absolute American hegemony, but Mm -hmm. this didn't look like it was going to be happening. And so China was pushed to the front of the stage before its time had come. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting... Yeah, this is a problem they had to deal with.
0: And so is that because partly... In in this example, the Chinese were hoping that some of the some of the problems at the edge of their rise, Taiwan, of course, could be dealt with quietly over the next fifty years.
1: Yes, and you know, really relying upon the U.S. military umbrella rather than fighting it. That is to say, of course, uh, the sovereignty of the of China needed to be ascertained and maintained, and all all the rest. Uh, but you know, China's rise required a stable world. Order underpinned by American military hegemony. And that was what seemed to be waning a bit too quickly for the Chinese. But in, in Professor Puitt's understanding, as far as I understand it, the takeover by China economically of the global order would then result in the destruction of neoliberalism itself. So it needed to, as it were, master uh, the capitalist economy in order to completely subvert it from having mastered it first. So that, if true, amounts to a completely different vision of a global order and China's role in it than what we are accustomed to think of in in terms of geopolitics. India, I don't think, has a grand vision. It wants to be a great power alongside other great powers, but I don't think it has a vision that, that encompasses the globe in this particular way ideologically. Mm. you know the the complete the mastery and destruction of capitalism you know or you know the 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 desire for american hegemony until a certain period and all the rest so that seems to be all worked out at least ideologically much more uh, in much more detail by china if what i read and hear is true uh, in india you seem to have a kind of vision of of multipolarity where India needs to join the club of big boys. Yeah. Uh, if
0: these countries don't at the moment have a geopolitical vision, they do at least have a like an internal vision, a vision of themselves. This is something yes. you, you, you said this earlier that this is a quote: visions of modernity are no longer European. And you were me you meant that. That for people in India, for example, they are more likely to think of Dubai or Shanghai as their model of what the future will look like. The other quote you had was that people don't go to Europe to see the future, but to see the past.
1: Yes. I mean, Europe poses an interesting problem because it's, in a way, if we stick to India for a while, you know, it it, it, it reminds Indian policymakers, I think, of the colonial period in India itself, because that was a period that was marked by visions of future, which were all federal in nature, partly because of the, you know, the plurality of political interests already present in colonial times in India. There was the Indian National Congress, but also the Muslim League. And that plurality of interests meant that you couldn't actually conceive of a unitary, centralized state until after partition once the country has been divided into India and Pakistan. So before that, you have this idea, which was promoted by the British as well, of a weak center and powerful provinces of a kind of federated imperial structure with no real sovereignty. Uh, and that really reminds people strongly of the EU as it exists today. So mm-hmm. it's a negative vision in some senses, you know, that India spent a lot of time trying to negate a federal vision for itself, as a regional entity rather than a national one but that's exactly what europe has brought back to world history so when india was fighting for its sovereignty as a unitary state there were only unitary states around it with the soviet union being the only one that was supposed to be allegedly non-unitary today you have the eu which is a non-unitary state which is a federated entity which doesn't really have sovereignty of its own unless NATO is its true sovereign power, which is possible. And so the EU plays this curious role as a kind of re- a bad reminder of the past, but also a kind of vision of the future that uh, countries like India would rather not have, either for themselves uh, or for others.
0: But I mean, even away from the political structure that they are, but their vision of the world that uh, they have encompasses, isn't it... Is it not the case that when, for example, Indians and Chinese think about what they want their their country to be in the modern world, is it the case that they are looking at models in Europe, or is it the case that they are looking at
1: models elsewhere? Well, you know, in some ways, they are, so in, in terms of ordinary social life, technology, this sort of thing, as I mentioned in the in the article you cited, hmm. uh, you know, their, their range of models is now glo- truly global. It doesn't have to be Western any longer. Hmm. Of course, the West remains important because it is still the single largest resort for migration and for education from all of these countries. Uh, it's not like you have large numbers of Indian students going to China, yeah. They would or for or to Russia you know right. and places yeah. like that they in fact there are many Indian students in Russia and in in many ex-soviet uh, republics this has to do with history and has to do with fees and visa availability whether whereas you know it's only those who have the funding to go to the West who can go to the West you need a great deal of it yeah. to do so so there is that but you know I think that it's not a question of a vision because they may not, the Chinese may have some kind of grandiose vision of a global order with themselves at the center. And the Indians have a kind of rhetoric of that, but no particular detailed vision for it. But that doesn't mean that a, a global order is not coming into being anyway, despite the fact that there is no plan for it. And it's it's the way in which these countries respond to Western actions these days or to what happens in Europe, such as the Ukraine war that are putting into place, brick by brick, a new kind of order. Almost, as I said, despite themselves and despite their intentions. So the way in which they respond or have responded to the law to the crisis in Ukraine has already brought back to life something very, very crucial for the early history of internationalism, which is to say neutrality, which had been wiped away for decades Certainly by the war on terror, but even before the war on terror, neutrality was simply a non-issue. You couldn't be neutral. Uh, Neutrality would mean that sanctions didn't work. Forget about military uh, intervention. Uh, And by reasserting the role of neutrality, once upon a time, a great principle of all thinking about internationalism, these countries, without even having a worked-out plan for a future global order, are nevertheless putting it into place, because neutrality, if I'm correct, will be the way in which, will be one way in which a new kind of order starts emerging.
0: In that case, to, to end the podcast, can we say, since we're talking about global visions and competing global visions and the growing up of new global visions, can we say that in the 21st century even if the 21st century does not turn out to be an american century or even a western century that at least it will grow up in the shade of that narrative the western narrative provides the structure against which countries will rebel or within which countries will assert their
1: own narratives as i said you know what what the ukraine war tells us in so many ways is that the The building blocks of a Western historical narrative, such as the Cold War and the Second World War, which were, after all, truly global events, both of them, are now shrinking and becoming provincial events, are becoming purely Western events, in part because they've been, as it were, hegemonized by Western powers for so long. No one else is allowed to make their own interpretation of the Second World War, the Cold War, to show how their part of the world somehow defined it. It's always been seen as a Western, even though it never was. It was truly a global enterprise, both of these wars. They've been seen and colonized intellectually as Western events. And the consequence of that now is that they will be relegated as Western events and increasingly provincialized. They will no longer define the way in which other countries see both their own historical past and the possible future that they wish to inhabit. So new kinds of concerns, I think, are coming into the fore, not necessarily alternative events. So the Chinese might have this alternative history of events, you know, a center of humiliation that they will pose as uh, fundamental to their vision of the global order. But these kinds of events are not meaningful for many other parts of the world in the way that the Cold War and the Second World War had been for them. So I don't think there's an alternative to these Western models, just that the Western historical models are retreating and becoming more and more provincialized on the one hand. On the other hand, there is no alternative, but there are new ways of behaving, new forms of political practice that are inadvertently almost creating something uh, quite new. And neutrality, I think, is one of the ways in which that novelty is coming into being. So what's going to take, you know, step into that evacuated arena of historical models I don't know, maybe we don't need them any longer. Maybe we are moving to a multipolar regionalized world in which it's regional histories that will loom much larger uh, than these big beasts of you know global yeah. events that we have been focusing on until now. Faisal Devji, thank you very much. Thanks. This has
0: been The Lead from New Lines magazine. If you'd like to hear more about Faisal Devji, you can find him on Twitter at Faisal Devji. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.